All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We have, for the first time ever, a special guest joining Brian and I, Pastor Bernardo Porter, uh, pastor of Peculiar Generation Church in North Carolina, a fantastic man who has partnered with Outbound Life for many years. Um, and this today is the first time I've had the pleasure of meeting him myself, but Brian, you have been friends with him for many years, so tell us a little bit about that relationship. When we first launched our ministry back in 2010-11, man, it's been 11 years. Um, we yeah. we met because we sat on a uh, a school board. A school was getting ready to open, and we I was asked to sit on a board, and we came there. And your honesty and integrity, and I, I just got to share this story because it's it's really endeared me to you. Is you just looked at me and said, you know, you're the token white guy, and it just it. It, it it so blessed me because it was it was just the sincerity of who you were, and we've become friends ever since then. We did you you're the one who first helped us launch our Mission 300 program to young men and men in your community at your church, and it has just been awesome. And we've been friends and uh, partners ever since then. So by the way, thank you for joining us and bringing your insight and a man of God, a man of wisdom. Uh, a uniter and someone that uh, understands the issues of our day from a personal level, from an outside level, and just a, a good observational level of what what is going on. Bless you, man. I'm 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 happy to be here, and it's a it's a blessing to be here. It's a blessing to be connected with you, um, Brian, for all these years and outbound, and uh, to meet you, Jason, today for the first time. I'm thankful for the whole uh, social media thing to be able to see you guys as well as to be in the presence of you guys, even though we're miles away. So uh, it's an honor. And uh, the kind words uh, were great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, much needed on the day like today. So I appreciate you guys. And I can uh, I can vouch for uh, how, how highly Brian thinks of you throughout the years that I've, as I've worked with him. There's a handful of people that when he talks about them, there's just, there's something different that I can tell in the relationship. Like you've got people that are acquaintances, people that are friends, people that are connected in ministry and technical aspects and all this stuff. But there's always been something, it, something of a strength the way he talks about you, where it's like, man, this guy, if there's someone you need to listen to, if there's someone who has the heart of a pastor, the heart of a leader, it's this guy. So not to, not to try to Build your ego too much, but I can vouch for all the good things Brian said. <laughs> Thank you. My head, I felt my head swelling. I was like, "Hold up, what's going on?" But no, uh, I, 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 I feel the same about Brian. It's, it's, and sometimes I, I'm thankful that the Lord had allowed me to not know the total impact to keep me in a place because I, I see him as my brother, just like the rest of them. And so I think that's something that I feel that the Lord allows me to do. I guess just to be be me and I just don't know until people just say what they say. So it's very, very genuine that you guys are saying what you're saying. So Brian, I thank you. And uh, your, your check is in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure I give you the right address for that. No, <laughs> very sincere. You, you're, you're a believer in people. And um, I think that that really brings us back to, we, we were wanting to do this podcast before, um, the recent event with George Floyd took place, but it really fits right now in the sense of you have such a, a good understanding. And I think it's important that people hear the heart of someone who is a loving person, that's a uniter, that's connected, 
but just how the whole event takes place because um, we may we may be a different color, but there is a truth that we have different cultures. And sometimes the culture blends. I live in another country that I'm I'm known as a Farang. So I'm the white guy and in a culture that isn't white. So sometimes if they get frustrated, you'll hear a cashier say something. And I, I deliberately put myself in that world. So to say I can relate or fully understand, I, I don't know I could do that, but at least I have a, a semblance of knowing I need to understand somebody more than just friends, but culturally the, the world they live in because we're, we're different that way but not different in the uniqueness and the value that God has for us. True. I understand that wholeheartedly. And I can see that, especially being in a whole different call. I, I can't imagine and being like I said, the culture of what to do, what not to do, how to respond to people, where not to go, what not to wear, uh, just, just trying to adapt to that. I'm, I'm sure that's very difficult. Uh, in a whole strange land, especially for nine to 10 years. So let's uh, let's get into a bit of the, the more difficult things to discuss here, but some of the most important conversations that, you know, we all agree it probably needed to have happen for a while, um, but we've got today. So with everything that's going on, everything that sparked with George Floyd, what has that done to you internally? So you as a man, you as a pastor, as a leader in your community, what has that done to you and then how has that also affected your community? I can start with, um, I can start with the community because that's what, that's what triggered first. Uh, when I first saw the video, somebody posted a video, and I was just happened, I was laying in bed, and I just happened to call, catch the, the Facebook, and I saw somebody post something. Someone of, um, that I've, com- I've communicated in the community uh, before, so I knew that whatever she was posting, it was pretty relevant, but I didn't know the time frame not knowing that it was happening or that it had just happened. And when I saw it and I watched the video, just watched it. And as I was watching it, I I just noticed some things that was strange. And when I say strange, not just the actions of the man having his knee on his neck, on George Floyd's neck, but it was the look on his face of, I don't care. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing, I'm not moving. And at that time, I heard people, innocent bystanders, standing by yelling and screaming and, hey, get off him, get off him. The other officer saying, hey, step back, whatever. And then I saw one time where the officer actually started rocking his knee. He started rocking his knee on the neck. And I was like, hold up. And that at that moment, that's when I felt in my heart that this is something not of the norm. Uh, as far as and when I say not of the norm, please understand it's normal to us to see African-American males be abused by police officers that have no integrity um, as being someone who's supposed to serve and protect. So I say norm from that standpoint, but this was above the normal abuse. And that's scary whenever as a as a black man. Uh, African-American can see normalcy in something that's happening on the regular because you don't believe things going to change, but then to see something abnormal in that normal thing. So the community just lost it. And then I instantly went into a place of, I don't know where I am. I I really like kind of lost myself for a minute, like to the point to where I honestly, internally, I went to a place that I haven't been in over 20 years. And um, that was not good for me. 
because I instantly started thinking about my sons. I started thinking about protection, weaponry. I just went straight there, and I quickly came out of it and said, no, this is not, not going to happen. So the, the community right now is in a place of anger, frustration, um, uh, madness. I think it's okay to be angry and not sin, but they're beyond angry. They're in a place, the community is in a place of uh, madness to where decisions, uh, proper decisions are not being made. And me, personally, I'm in a tough place right now. Uh, this, is, this is therapy for me because I was just recently sitting outside processing. You know, I'm just trying to be a black man, trying to do the best that I can and trying to take care of my family. And I don't know if I get pulled over today, am I going to make it home? Um, it's just tough. It's tough. It's tough. I, if I had to, if I had to give you a definition of where I am, I would say that I am angry, not to the point of um, physically physical violence or anything, but I am angry at a place to where I'm beyond sitting back being a Facebook complainer. That I feel like if I had to make a decision and go to the higher powers that be, then I feel like that I would probably be more vocal than I've ever been in my life because I feel like something needs to be done. You know, um, so it's it's a tough place right now emotionally, spiritually. I'm in a good place. I know God is able. I know God will do it. God can do it. He can fix it. I know all those things. It's biblical. But as a man, as a black man, I, I'm more concerned about my three black sons that I have. You know, if they get pulled over, if it was them, would I respond the way that I feel today? The way that I feel today, would I respond in the way that people are rioting right now in Minnesota? And I would probably say yes. And it's sad to say as a pastor, whatever, if it was my sons, I probably would be doing something. And I pray I wouldn't, but I probably would be in that place because it's my sons. You know, Bernardo, you bring a different perspective because of how you were brought up could you take a moment and just share the connections that you have because you have a unique upbringing so uh, as a uh, when I was five years old of course I lived in the neighborhood uh, here in, in Gastonia North Carolina it's called Modena and in Modena it was it was considered the hood uh, where there was a lot of people didn't even have cars to travel back and forth people unemployed you know food stamps the whole uh, urban lifestyle, and then I went to a school called Hancock Elementary where I was in kindergarten, and I know some people don't think that they can remember back so far, but I remember being, you know, at five and six years old in kindergarten, and uh, people were picking on uh, this white kid, his white, his name was Jay Bean, and um, uh, so I protected him, and I was fighting with him, and I remember it to the point to where whenever the teacher, Miss Baker is her name, when Miss Baker um, told Jay's mom what happened. She took me in and she was like, you love my little boy. And I remember from that day on, I started living with, so I have my, my biological mother and father at that particular time who are uh, black. And then I had uh, Patty and, and Mike Bean who had one child, which is Jay Bean. And um, they just let me come spend a night, come hang out. And I just built that relationship to the point to where I never wanted to go home because my community was, we just had... We played outside. We didn't have any toys like that. We just outside in the woods, whatever, hood stuff. But when I went over to 
my Caucasian family, they had trampolines, had a dog, had uh, a business where they did carpentry in the back. They lived right next door to the grandparents, so we can go back and forth from grandma's house. We've eaten frozen grapes for, uh, for snacks. This is the life that I knew here at, at my white family's house. When I go home, we barely making bologna sandwiches with not enough bread, one piece of bread folded. So my whole mentality was to be able to, to see, you know, you're eating a hot dog without a hot dog bun, but over here you have hot dogs with chili, ketchup, mustard, and slaw. And that whole dynamic was like, wait a minute, I felt like it was different. We barely had a car, but I get dropped off in a Lincoln Continental in 1988. 1982, 1985, all those years, I'm being dropped off in the hood with cars that nobody's ever seen before because my grandmother, uh, she worked for Haygood Lincoln Mercury. And so those things of me coming, dropped off in sunroof cars in 82, 83, 84 in the hood, it put me in a, a strange place where I understood the struggle, but I also understood the blessings of people. And so to see the dynamics, so right now, it's like I know the culture to a point of how uh, a middle class to upper class white community can live, you know, and I was a part of it all the way up until now, even to the point to where I can also know that when we were in the hood, we just used whatever we had and had hand-me-downs. So me right now, with my people, the people that I live with or people that I, I work with, I can sit in a room with predominantly white males and not be intimidated at the same time on the backside the intimidation is there because they're trying to figure out how did I get here? Who am I? How did he, how is he able to have a conversation with us, but he has no degree? What college did he go to? Look at his criminal background record. How is he sitting here? Who brought him here? And so that's the dynamics of what I go through every day at a business meeting when I sit in a room with predominantly Caucasians, whether it's male or female. And so that's how I'm able to be able to navigate through culture, through both cultures and still be a bridge for the community at the same time I have to still respond as a black man not by anger not by force not by violence but I still got to stand up for my culture at the same time not be an uncle tom so with with your perspective and that's 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 valuable and rare and it's incredible that you're able to that you've got that perspective how has that affected you in with things that have gone on in the past similar to what we have right now but this seems this seems deeper. This seems like there's just something about it. So how how has that been different in the past? Because you've had your background, you've been a bridge, and we God knows we need more bridges and less walls. How has that shaped things in this instance? Or I guess why is it different? You know, uh, the, the reason why this is different for me is because previously when situations happen or when anytime something happens, I don't make knee jerk reactions. And a knee-jerk reaction to me is assuming that what I see is truth or full truth. And so I always wait and I don't respond until other evidence come out. And then you see later that other evidence comes out that something triggered this action, even if it wasn't justified by humanity, but by law it was justified and then murder happened or death happened. Then it puts me in a place to where I didn't say something out of order early and just look typical. And so I, I kept my silence. But in this particular situation, and the reason why I've done it is because maybe for another podcast, another moment is that my past is not all clean either. 
you know, I was facing 90 years in the federal penitentiary. I ended up doing a total of 46 months because of my lifestyle of being a, a drug smuggler and a, and a gun smuggler. And so watching the neighborhood and knowing how to navigate through the neighborhoods and just watching how people do things, I know that certain things are not always what it looks like. So to fast forward and bring us up to where we are now, this situation was about forgery. forgery and then you could see that it was just blatant disrespect and blatant murder and then I never really got upset totally until I saw that there was two other cops on the other side of the video that we never saw and that's when I knew that it was something different and so that's what sparked um, something inside of me to move forward to say okay now that was too much you know if I thought it was just one guy holding a man down handcuffed which is not good at the same time it was two other officers on the back side holding a man down so that's what that's what made me fired up yeah when when you see something right. like that at first do you become angry at the officers or do you become angry that it's white officers with a black man or do you see it as just officers with a man how how's your first interpretation how how do you process that well normally i'll see okay, here we go again, it's a black man and a white officer. That's the first response, to be honest. The first response is, uh-oh, what happened? How is this going to go down? And it's not that the person is white per se, but because I know the responses or I know what has happened traditionally when there's a white officer and a black male, but not because there's some tension between myself and white, a white officer because I have a lot of white officers as friends and constituents and, you know, the sheriff here in Gaston County. So the, the color barrier is not the first thing that hits my heart. It's just more so what did the black man do? What did the white man do to this in this instance as far as officer and black male? So that's the first thing that kicks. Then I'll wait for the information. And when I'm watching things, once you see it, it's like, wow, the hurt happens because a life is taken or shot or injured or abused but then i'm always waiting I, I honestly i'm always waiting to see if a person deserved some type of punishment or if they put themselves in a situation because of attitude because of anger because of are you the angry black man that they say that you are and did you respond like an angry black man or were you were you respectful and they still did it so that's where i'm, I'm always processing every time i see anything like this and the reason I, br I bring that up is because we have such a, a such a tense society that um, if you saw that happening to me, let's say I was on the ground, you would probably feel the same way because we have a personal relationship. And I'm just wondering from a perspective, when we see an event, that to say no one has a bias, everyone has a bias. When I say bias, it doesn't mean that you're discriminatory or anything like that, but you have a filter of ex life experience. Now, after that event, how did you feel about the police officers as a whole? Well, I felt like as a whole, the police officers, I really didn't know. Once I found all the information, I felt like the one guy who was standing up, standing in front of the, the crowd, I felt like... He was an innocent bystander um, to a point. I felt like he was just doing his normal job. He looked like a rookie, even if he wasn't. He looked like he was just trying to keep the people off of his brother, law enforcement. Then afterwards, 
I looked at why did he just say, hey, man, that's enough. But his job was keep the crowd. So looking at all the officers at the end, I feel like no one had enough humanity in them to say, okay, that's enough. You know, move your knee. We got him. Nobody stepped up to the plate to be a a catalyst to who they represent as far as serving and protecting. The man was detained. He, he was already saying he couldn't breathe, whether he was lying or not, whether he was just trying to do whatever he could to get the man's knee off his neck. I noticed that the other two individuals didn't say, hey, man, we got him. He's good. Go ahead. and You can get up. That alone made me think that they had more in them deeper than the fact of um, detain them. So then I, at that point, I felt that all of them, at least three of them, I feel at least three of them need to get the full max penalty, you know, and, and, and that's how I feel about the officers at this moment is that that one particular one, but then the other two, because they didn't have enough in them to help tell their brother, okay, that's enough and have some sense of honor for a human, whether he's black, white, Hispanic or whatever. And so why do you think that is? So like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to try it. Obviously, none of us can read the minds of the officers in this situation, but what what could possibly be in someone's mind or be in their training or be in their habits to where they see something like that playing out right in front of them? Like a normal human being, any normal human being would react and want to intervene, especially if you're an officer and you have the means to. So what what do you think prevented them and in general prevents officers from stepping in when they see those things? Like, is it is it something that you think is ingrained in the system or much more individual basis? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I think what's ingrained in the system, I'm not an officer. I do have some friends that are officers and certain things they I'm privy to, but then there's certain things that I'm not. They're going to, it's a brotherhood. It's a, it's a code. It's a union. It's a brotherhood. And to cross each other, then you get outcast in the brotherhood. So it's like, it's blue or nothing. And so I see that inside of uh, inside of a lot of it's kind of like a gang. You know, you can't be in a gang and then and then cross your brother. You have to ride or die with your brother and then you'll deal with the issues when you get back to the office or you get back to the house or to the hood. And so yeah. and it's sad to say it that not all officers are that way. But yet and still, the system is we stick together because we're out here putting our lives on the line for and our families may not get us to come home. We may not be able to go home. So we're going to stick together. And so people, I believe, just my opinion and what I've seen is like they they're going to look out for each other. And then if it's something wrong, they would deal with it in the locker room and back at the precinct. And so a level of fear of seniority, I, I work in a field where seniority matters. So sometimes being afraid of certain senior people and then the people's individual lives outside of their profession, also they know. I mean, I don't want to put anybody in a bad affiliation outside of, um, the, the, you know, as far as where they work. But sometimes that's an, a situation, whether they're, whether there's a black person that's in the, uh, uh, that's in the Black Panthers, whether he's part of Black Lives Matter, or whether it's a white person that's part of KKK or some other Aryan Nation type stuff, whatever. It's the lives outside it. They know who they're dealing with, and they know. And I feel like some people are scared, even on the force, to to enforce humanity with someone of their brotherhood inside of the police uh, police department. And I think that was part of the thought process as well. Don't say anything to me. I am senior officer or I am who I am and if you cross me then you have to deal with me 
Bernardo, as you're talking about this, um, it's I'm just going through my thoughts of what I viewed when I saw it, and it's so good to hear your perspective of it. And when you know when I saw that, I just saw agree like a callousness and. So my, my degree is in law enforcement, went through the police academy. We spent hours doing takedowns, how to deal with different situations and all of that. And um, it's, it's interesting that the more we get heated as a people and the more it gets fueled, the more we're going to see this kind of frustration break out on both sides. In my internship and all that, I did most of my ride-alongs in uh, Black communities, saw that side. I listened to the, the police officers talk about the scenarios. And I'll be honest with you, it wasn't all good talk. And there becomes this us against them. And then you add all the political pressure, you add all of that stuff, and it becomes more of a boiling point that we're we're going to end up seeing more of this, and uh, from an officer as a gen, as a general uh, idea, not necessarily not the officers that were in question, but the officers in general. How how would they respond when you're working in a community that they hate you? It's become so bad that if you're in blue in certain com- in communities, you're hated. How do you? keep a sense of order. Uh, again, not this situation. This, this is out of control. I'm just talking about just normal. How do they continue to care for those people in the community versus just putting a barricade around them and say, we're not going in because we don't want any more conflict. You guys deal with your own problems. Uh, how do we avoid that? Like, like how, how does that tension from that side, how do you perceive is a, is a, is a, a bridge that we can start working through some of those ideas? Well, one of the things that I've learned about the uh, my community here uh, in Gastonia, that every officer, when they come on shift, they have a general area that they're supposed to patrol. And so a lot of times patrolling the area is just a ride through. Hey, this is my area. If something goes on, I'm close enough to be able to deal with the issue if something comes up. But there has to be a relationship with the officers, as well as the people in the community, whether you're driving by, you see people standing out and you roll the window and say, hey, guys, I am your officer that comes to make sure everything's OK. I'm not here to bother you guys. Hey, if you need anything, I'll be close by. I'll be riding through. It has to start with the relationship between the neighborhood um, individuals that may be doing illegal stuff. But they have to at least have respect for the person in blue. And the person in blue has to be able to respect the people in the neighborhood, not saying overlooking crime, but saying, hey, guys, you know, it's not good. It's not a good look for you guys to be out here late at night doing this or whatever. It's all about relationship and being able to be present. If you're present in the community and people know that you are a good officer, black people or Latino people, or even white people in the community will say, you know, I'm, I, I don't really like a bunch of police officers, but this one, he's cool, you know, and they'll get, they'll gain the respect from the community by not coming in trying to regulate it, but to make sure they're, they're here to serve and protect, not come in and dictate. So that means be a present help. 
but also be present to have a relationship. So if somebody has an issue, then they, then it can work for the whole community. But people are afraid to talk to officers simply because they're not present and they show up when somebody has a domestic violence situation or somebody does a random phone call and say, hey, they're standing on the corner. And when they show up, then people are fearful because they're thinking before the shootings, they're thinking, oh, they're coming to lock me up. They're probably going to do something to me. Granted, if they're doing something wrong, yes, that's the first fear. But if they're not doing anything wrong and someone and an officer rides up and pulls up just to say, hey, guys, just letting you know, first thing it is, man, get out of here. We don't we don't fool with you. So it's all about relationship. It has to start with being present in that community before something happens. Dialogue and let people know. You see the videos where officers show up and they shoot basketball with the kids and having fun or they'll do a dance off or something. That's the bridge between the community where people see that officer, they won't harm the officer. The officer won't be there to just arrest people, but just to be there to serve mm-hmm. in whatever way that they can serve. That's what will help the community. I think that's such a huge point. And that goes back to you. We're talking about the bonds between people. And I, I look at the bonds, the bond in in the circle of just officers. Like there's a brotherhood, there's a bond there. But what if that bond could be could be adjusted to where the officer has a bond with his community that he's in? And it's not a bond of, here's me with my officers over here and we're over you. It's a bond of, I'm with you, this is my community. I mean, like years and years ago, officers would go through a town, go through a community and they would stop into the, to the businesses just to say hi. They knew the business owners. There was relationships there because they lived in that community. If that's, I guess I have a question on two points of that. Do you think that's something that we could get back to realistically? Like, is that possible for us to recreate those bonds that hold communities together? And if so, what's a starting point for that? You touched on it a little bit already, but what would be a starting point to get back to that? Well, I can say here in Gaston County, we have, um, it's the um, um, progressive coalition um, here in Gaston County where the sheriff and the police officers and the pastors, they've come together and they formed a, a, a group to where we, it's called a GC3, where they get together, um, they get together and they talk about the issues before they come up or if something happens in the community. Sheriff Alan Kloniger will get together. He'll bring all the pastors in through email. Hey, we need to meet. Let me give you the information what's going on for it to be able to be disseminated to, to the community, to be able to say, hey, guys, um, we talked with the sheriff and the city police and the chief of police, and they told us that this is where we stand with this particular incident in our community from all of the cities around. And so we have that coalition and we made a covenant. We actually did a ceremony to where the pastors and the officers came together and signed a covenant that it will be the first choice, the first action of when something happens that the, the, the police officers and the pastors and leaders of the community will come together and discuss the situation at hand so that we could go uh, as black African-American pastors or even white pastors can go back to our congregations and say, hey, this is what has happened. This is what's going on in our police department. Uh, uh, they're working on it. Just stay tight. Don't do anything. Give us a moment to be able. So that's what could happen. If that would happen throughout county and state, then I believe there will be less issues because the voices that people will hear are the voices of their pastor or their leaders. And if the the, the officers have a relationship with these uh, with these pastors, then they can trust that these pastors will go back and say, hey, talk to your little grandson and tell him to chill out, you know, or, hey, go 
to Jimmy and tell Jimmy not to be riding up and down the highway that way because racing. We have that communication. So for Gaston County, I can applaud our um, our police department and sheriff department that this is what we have done in our community to make sure that if something of this magnitude was to even spark, then we have a relationship. We will still be mad. They will still be nervous, but we will still have a conversation. And I believe that's where we start throughout every county in America. If we start that way and have this covenant throughout every county, I believe it will really, really bridge the gap and, and, and have less killing. So in, in your community, how have the people, has it changed the view towards the police in your community as a result of this? Has there been a little bit of tension between just the the, the police and the sheriffs in Ca Gaston County and Gastonia have have they felt that or has the community been able to function because there's already a pre-built relationship? I believe it's a little bit of both. I think that the I believe because this is so sensitive and I actually ran into a situation today on my way home and I'll even try to share you the video early, but uh, later uh, there's a tension, but it's a tension. Um, it's a level of tension only from a standpoint that it happened. Our community right now, we don't have as many situations like that. Um, we have this relationship with the pastors and with the, 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 the police officers. I'm not saying that, it's, uh, that people are happy that we have this type of relationship. I'm saying that it hasn't been, it hasn't escalated. I've talked to a couple of people in their Facebook lives and their Facebook lives are like, they're sick of it from a distance, but they can't say they're sick of it from our county. Because it doesn't happen like that, because we do have a relationship. And the people that are sick of it are mostly people who are not involved with the church or political aspects. So they're going to rebel or have their thoughts anyway. You know, you said something really profound and that whole relationship piece where we've had a relationship for a long time. And I know sometimes I just out of ignorance will do something that may be contrary to a cultural way of thinking for you and your community. But because you love me and know me, one, you can speak to me. Two, you could either overlook it because I'm just being ignorant, but my intentions are good. And that it goes back and forth. Like our relationship where I can just be honest with you and you can be honest with me and then we can discuss I, I think you said something that's really profound is that we've lost that across the board where we almost, we make our ideology the platform of our identity versus the identity of who we are. And then we can discuss and argue and disagree and try to come to a solution over our ideology. It's really, I'm, I'm not gonna say it's nothing that could be done. It's really it, it goes it goes really back to the relationship you have to carry. It's, it's character. If your character exudes out of who you are and you're really trying to de-escalate the situation, or you see somebody as an officer, you see someone that's we call it mean mugging, where they have the the face bent up, their forehead is squinched up, and they're looking like I don't like this officer. And an officer is walking down the road and sees this person looking at them like there's got there's some hatred there. The first thing that happens is I'm sure that officer, whether it's fear or concern, that officer is always on guard because they don't know what this person is going to do or how this person even sees them as a police officer. But the relationship, if that officer has been present in the neighborhood 
um, then that's one thing. But if it's just a random person, there's nothing you can do other than to greet each other. You know, and I know this sounds as somebody else would say is kind of corny or whatever. But if the officer, hey, how you doing? You know, to a person who's got their pants sagging and they look like the ideal profiled black angry person. If the officer would speak and show some type of kindness, then a lot of times the person that looks like the person that will hurt you is probably the most nicest person. And it's really it's um, I'll share this with 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 your community is that a lot of times it's a it's a protection mode of why we look the way we look we're really in protect mode we're really we're, we look the way we look sometimes because that's our neighborhood but then that makes us feel like we're we're strong whether it's good or bad pants sagging yeah. looking crazy hair all over the place whatever it looks like it's bad representation of how we should look as a human being but sometimes it's protect mode you know, I, I was talking about a chameleon the other day, and my daughter and I, we were talking about how a lot of times chameleons, just they blend in not so much just to be cool, but to be protected, you know, to be protected or for them to be able to eat later. So a lot of times we have to, we put on black or we wear black as a protect mode, you know, and I will say this, the intimidation of a black man, and I can say this humbly, is that a lot of times most white males are intimidated by a black man that they don't know. And let me say that from a standpoint of if when I show up to a business meeting and I'm the only black male in the room and they don't know who I am, instantly I see a, a, a defense mechanism like, who is this? How did he get here? What is he doing? Who brought him? And they're more intimidated by my presence and now don't even know my history than they are by my intelligence that they have no clue of. And so it's more like, how did he infiltrate this area? Not that they are supreme, but how did he get here? Who is he? Where did he come from? And so I think the same thing with officers. They just don't know the, they just don't know the person that they're about to deal with, and the person doesn't know the type of character of the officer. So some stuff you just can't deal with other than just character. You have to speak and be kind. And, and, and I know that may not answer the question as much as I would love for it to be, but some stuff just not going to change. It's a perception. No, that that actually is exactly what I was what I was going to ask you. So do you think that that those dynamics are something that we're going to have to live with and learn how to deal with in a healthy, proper way? Or is there an end result of those dynamics not existing anymore? No, people are going to be neighborhood or as we would say, hood people are going to be hood. Police officers are going to be police officers. And to say that it could change, yes, I believe all things can change. God can do all things. I just believe that the wheat always grow with the tear. And he's going to do the separate. And we have to see it from that standpoint. When I look into a neighborhood, whether it's a neighborhood that seems to be trailer park neighborhood or hood, as we call it, hood rat neighborhood, I just know that you're going to have good growing inside of where wheat is. Wheat and tear is going to grow together. And and the separation comes down the road. So some stuff is just not going to change. You know, you said when, when I asked you the question earlier of what do you think to change, I think part of the question maybe could be who's responsible to start the change. And quite honestly, yeah. as as a law, when, when I was starting in the journey of law enforcement and now I work in the Ministry of Justice in Thailand and working with uh, juveniles and we you want to talk about racial disparities and class systems it's like five different groups and it, it's it's all over the place and 
but it it really starts with the person who's uh, been given the authority and the oath to do something. And so in a sense that should the black community start now reaching out to the police officers? Well, I think there's leaders within that community, like pastors and uh, community leaders that can start that bridge, but it really does start with the officer because they, they choose that profession. You didn't choose to be born the way you were, but you do choose the profession that you step into. It's, it stems back to accountability. If if we don't hold each other accountable in any area, whether it be the neighborhood or whether it be in the poli- in the precinct, if we don't hold each other accountable, if I don't say to my black brothers and sisters, hey, don't do that. Don't put yourself in a situation. This is not good citizenship of our city, our local government. Whatever you do this, you're going to put more heat on the neighborhood and black people because you're living this way you're doing. It. That's holding them accountable, being accountable as a leader out of community. That's that part. And then also in as far as in the precinct, it, th- those that are there should say, that's in authority to say, hey, this we don't put up with that garbage. If you have some type of race issue or whatever, listen, you keep that stuff to yourself, but you don't uh, you don't usurp your authority here in uh, here in the street. We serve people. You might not like a black person or a Latino person, but you're going to be accountable for what this, this badge that you have on. You do what you do when you're at home, but you're not going to do this when you're out serving. That's where it starts, and that's where it has to be done, whether black, white, Hispanic, whatever. As leaders of each area, we have to hold each other accountable for our actions, and then we can move on to that next level. Until that happens whether it's officers holding officers accountable for their actions and really get the penalty, then it goes to the Supreme Court to where, listen, you know, some people have to be dealt with on a whole. Someone said something today. They felt that the officers, all officers or people that's in leadership that's been sworn in to serve and protect should be held at a higher standard of penalty. Even from if the, if the pastor is held at a higher standard for leading people, though he's not perfect, but he has to be more humble and beside himself and make sure that he digress so that God can increase in him. If he's held at that standard, so should the officers. If you do something against the rules of serving and protecting, then your penalty will be greater. And I, I believe if the right people in the right place and that happens, then I believe that things will be a little bit different. I think that's that's super important. And I, I want to go one step further with that. Maybe not necessarily further, but... For a lot of our listeners, and like for me, I'm not in law enforcement, and I'm not black, but it doesn't mean that I get to look at a situation like this and say, well, it's the officer's responsibility to fix. They need to hold themselves accountable, or it's the black community's responsibility, and they need to hold themselves accountable. I don't get to just—I don't, I don't think I should get to just remove myself and say, well, I'm going to wait for them to fix a problem. So what, what would you say is a proper role for someone like me? or a lot of people out there to to participate in the responsibility, participate in the accountability as a as a believer, as a Christian, as a strong, confident person, as an individual? Well, that's a great question. And and that that was uh, brought up today by my, my mother. She said, honey, what do you want me to do? I'll do anything you need me to do. And the reason why she said that is because the 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 son that I became friends with, her son, he in, uh, ended up committing suicide over eight years ago. So I'm her only son now, and I'm black. And so she's afraid that she's going to lose me. And so she's saying, what do I do? 
What can I do to help? I'll speak. I'll grab people together. I said, your platform of who you are in this community, people love you. People spend thousands of dollars a day in your boutique. And you introduce me as your son. So you need to stand and say whatever it needs to be said and, and show that you support not just black, but right. And so, so someone like you, I would say use your platform. I would say use who you are. And, and you have to ask yourself also, what are you willing to lose for right, for righteousness? It has nothing to do with black or white. And so I would say that's the conversation that you would have to have in the white community with your constituents. And when they say, oh, well, you know, they're just going to tear up everything and steal stuff anyway. No, you have to say, what about the humanity of the humanity? You have to be at a place to where you may lose a friend or you may lose someone or someone that's close because they feel like you're taking up for black people. But no, you're taking up for right. You have to speak out. You have to post since we have social media. You have to stand and say not just a general, hey, this is wrong and we should do better. We should pray. No, you have to stand up to say, I do not believe in this. And you have to go to the extreme of what you believe in your heart as a man of God. And that loves the Lord and know that this is wrong. And whatever you feel that that's your conviction towards the situation, you do that and also encourage your friends that feel the same way. And that way you'll see who really, really cares more about humanity than they do um, just the situation is bad. Because that's the easy cop out to be straight up. It's an easy cop out to say, hey, this is tough out here, man. That's, that's not right. They should be prosecuted. No, we need to hear your heart. We all know that that's wrong. We need to hear the deeper part of your soul. So we'll know that we connect with you and that you connect with us, even though you're not black. You don't have black children. You don't have a black son. You don't have a black father. We know that whether it's black or white, you say, you know what? This is wrong for, on my brother. Bernardo, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And, um, and, and again, you, you've done really good at starting to share your heart and how you view and helping helping those that don't culturally live within your culture. I'm not referring to color, just culture. Um, you, you, we don't know sometimes how to, we'll respond from our mechanism, but it doesn't necessarily meet the needs of what's going on. And I think sometimes that gets lost in translation. And so you just opening up and sharing of, of this value and even just, just in that relationship piece, if we would just stop, and, and quit looking at what we think and what we perceive and what how uh, maybe a previous experience has affected us and begin engaging those relationships. We need, we you know, Bernardo, we need discussions. But if we don't have relationships, we need arguments sometimes. We need sometimes yeah. de uh, deliberate, uh, oh, yeah. not not angry at the person, but angry at the issue arguments. We need those things in our society, but we need it built on the relationship that regardless of our disagreement of philosophy, per se, or ways of going about it, or ways we think we need to handle it, if I devalue you because I disagree with your mechanism or your way of doing things. So that has to come to, to the forefront is the value of the, the evil on every. Would you agree? I mean, is that, is that a, yeah. a fair assessment? It's a fair assessment. Here's the, here's the bigger issue. Here's one of the major issues with that. The major issue is that in order to, you, in order to know another person's culture, yes, it starts with the relationship, but there are certain things that we, 
and I'm not all not all white people had a silver spoon in their mouth. So I know a lot of people who have made it in life because they worked hard and they were poor. But that's not a lot of them. And so the thing about it is understanding that you have the majority of black males that never make it to college or ever have the dad in their home. They had a single mother that's raising two, two to three to four children in one home. You know, you, you, you have that dynamic of where no one is teaching this young man how to be a young man from a male perspective. And so understanding the culture is understanding that this guy didn't have his daddy like you had your, yours. You know, where the direction came from a female and it was all emotional. So then you got emotional men who only know how to act out and lash out because they didn't have that structure of a male to guide them other than the big guy in the community. And that's not every black male, but that's a majority that you see in our generation. So yes, it begins with relationship between black and white, but also you have to understand, understand in my culture, you know, as a black man, there's still some things that you won't understand even in a relationship. You know, you tell you all day, you know, that we're brothers from another mother type thing and, and love on each other. But when it comes down to whether I do something in a black cultural way and you do it in a white cultural way and it does not agree, it could be embarrassing to you if we're out to eat somewhere and I do something black from a culture standpoint. And we're sitting around people like, what was that? And, and all because that's just not the trend of normal African-American males. So, yes, relationship goes beyond a conversation. It goes, it goes to fellowship. You know, it goes to a fellowship level. I, we have a relationship, but we don't get the fellowship. You know what I mean? You get to come to Thailand and hang out with you and learn how to eat Thailand food. You don't get to come to Gastonia except when you came that one time and went to eat some soul food, you know, after service. But it's kind of like that was one time of, of fellowship, but this should go on, on and on. So, yeah, it's really difficult to really... Um, to really meet to meet that need which which you hit some very underlying points which will kind of bring it to that bring it into that that closure because really all this surface stuff is really a, a fruit of i don't call it surface the the issue that happened in minneapolis the death of george floyd that's not a surface issue so i don't want to there's no trivialization of that event i'm just talking about the angst and the the, the tensions that, that are being fueled, it's it goes deeper than that. And even to your point of that fellowship point of, I agree, fellowship isn't showing up to church on Sunday. Fellowship is the interacting, the going out to the meal, the talking through. It's it's learning each other and being around each other. And, and that was the whole purpose of Outbound Life and our Mission 300 program to begin with, is this is why it's so important hearing from you, Bernardo, is our our whole our whole platform is to get to that underlying issue one the father in the home and this is all communities by the way this has become this is an international world problem i deal with it in thailand it's their number one issue with every kid in the probation system it's the number one issue with every kid that's gone into the prison system it's this fatherless so getting in and believing and seeing them for what they are as individuals, regardless sometimes of their actions, because uh, if we measured everything based on their actions, 
we would never have really any good relationships. But when you get to know them and you see what they really are and changing our viewing lens, that if the father is willing to live, take his son, leaving paradise with no evil, all righteous, all good, and he sends him into our cesspool of a world in order to connect fellowship and become a man and go into all the depths of the world so he could relate, so we could relate to him, so we could understand him, so he could eat with us, break bread, fellowship with us. How much more should we gather that mindset? I mean, if he, if God himself thought it was so important that we enter into another man's world and put away all of our perspective because we absolutely value the uniqueness of the individual, and they're made in the image of God, and they're family, and they don't even know it, and you invite them into that family, that is the essence of the whole gospel. And so what yeah. what you're talking about yeah. is really getting to that heart. That is that is the, the ultimate thing, but when you're dealing with people who don't even believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, when you're dealing with people who are going to this whole new age of the Israel, um, um, they're, they're uh, Israelites. They, they feel like they are the new Israelites and they don't believe that Jesus was a white man or they don't believe that Jesus. It goes way beyond before we even get to that point that I believe total, you know, wholeheartedly that that's where we're trying to get to. But you, we're dealing with people who don't even care about church, who cares about God. I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I wanted to get to a point, a, a deeper point that I'm not referring to whether that Jesus, the people believe in Jesus. I'm referring to God's mechanism to even reach the heart of people because his disciples didn't even believe he was the son of God till after three years. But in the journey, he had to be a human interacting, living among them, taking the persecution for loving the wrong people, facing the, the instant, all of that stuff. He got to where they were. So I'm referring to more of the model of what he did before they ever even believed. So if you never believed in Jesus, my mission isn't to get you just to pray a prayer and then I move on. I think that's, that's kind of ridiculous. I think my mission is I'm going to love you because this is how the Father views you, whether you accept me or not, and going deeper into that because that's what starts breaking it up. So before we can even get into believing in Jesus, someone has to start loving somebody. Right. Understood. No, I, I clearly understand you now. Yeah, you're right. Getting to the mechanism of what, uh, what we should be doing by being present, white, Latino, black, showing the love. That's the part that's missing, you're right, in the community from, I would say, our older community, whether I would say 50 and above. If you're 50 years old and above, just it's a possibility you don't have a good relationship with the opposite race. It's possible. And, and, and I've seen that even with my, my pastor friends. It's one, he's 62 years old. And he told me one day, he says, Bernardo, I don't even have a white friend. He's 62 years old, but he came up in the Afro and pro-black era. And so he doesn't know how to properly talk to his black community of uh, congregants and tell them to show the love. Because what happens, he'll get ran out of his church because they don't understand that when we're being shot and killed. 
versus love overpowers if you just have relationship with people. So you're right. The mechanism of what God put in the earth for us to follow, people are missing the whole. Forget about believing in Jesus, but believe in the love and the relationship and the mechanism. You're right. That's the first thing. But but then you got people that don't even have that whole concept of whether they even believe in it's a different generation. When I say different generation, I mean it's it's not the younger generation that's the issue. It's the older generation. It's us and above that that won't send and take the sacrifice as we talked about before. There has to be a level of sacrifice. Somebody has to tell, talk to their family and say, hey, children, from a white community, hey, children, we're going to stand for right. And that means we're probably going to be persecuted more so than we have been. And you're probably going to get... Um, uh, run into some issues at school because we're standing for right and that's probably going to be that we're standing more so from look like we're standing for the black community more so than we are for the white community that's going to be difficult for a lot of white people that's just that's going to be very difficult for a lot of white people because they don't know if they're willing to lose for someone who may not ever change they don't have the mind of Christ to where Christ died knowing that some people would never accept him and so is a white person willing to willing to die and lose their family and lose their placement? Um, and I know you guys would, but we're talking about the average. Are they willing to give up that level of security and financial status or just their placement in life where they're cruising for someone who's never who may never change? And they may go out and riot the next day and do crazy stuff. And then you're going to be standing there saying, oh, these are the people you believe in, Brian and Jason. These are the people that you're standing up right for and they're tearing up targets and stuff. That's, you got to be able to still stand on. I believe that God has a heart and God loves us and I'm standing for right. And no, this is not right, but I'm still standing for this. That's where it comes. That's where it has to be a big group of people that consistently says. That. Well, in the, and in our culture, there's a belief system that goes way beyond the black and white. Uh, it, it, there's things that have gone on for years. And I, Martin Luther King Jr., because when he was coming about, this was at the height of the communist mu- movement throughout the world. And I don't. Th- this seems like a weird thing to transition to, but I want you to listen to what he said. So in his, okay. in his speech, Strength to Love, in 1952, he said, communism, so don't, I'm not referring to a, a, a thing, I'm talking about a philosophy. The philosophy of okay. this is the only serious rival to Christianity. King critiqued communism's ethical relativism, which allowed evil and destructive means to justify an idealistic end. Communism, wrote King, robs man of the quality which makes him a man, that is being a child of God. And I think that's a concerning thing in all races in our country, is that the group we're in is our identity versus it begins that you're an individual identity within a group. And uh, I never want to say this in a way because this is such a hostile environment, but even coming into Thailand, when we came in, we were we had every strike against us when we started working with the government. We were uh, Farang, we were, which means foreigner. Well, actually it means French white man. Uh, so we're Farang. And we're Christian in a Buddhist country. They didn't know what our motive was. And you said something profound, and it ties to this whole story. But something connected us to the director, or the, the, the director of the probation system in Chiang Mai. So for almost six months, every Wednesday, we went out to lunch. 
And I kept saying, when do you want us to start working? We want to start working. We want to start helping. We want to start dealing with the fatherless issue. We want to start creating programs that will start bridging this gap. And we kept going to lunch. He said, you know why we're going out to lunch? And I said, no. He goes, because until I know you, I don't want you working with me. And so his fellowship was the eating and the normal conversation and how do you care about me first before you say you know you care? So that really validates that whole point. But then he said something very profound. He said, "From a, so think about anybody. So even if like, you know what, I'm going to take up this, this cause and I'm going to go help the black community because I'm going to take up this cause to help the black community. But I don't really have a heart of love, like you said, of sacrificing for that. I'm not willing to give everything up for that. It's just a surface cause. It's almost like I can become trendy. Does that make sense? I don't mean to, no belittling that, but it's almost like I could become trendy if I help over here. But I really don't care as an individual. I care about the whole. And he said, missionaries come for three reasons. The first one is to take pictures and raise money. The second one is to convert people over to their group, and if they don't join, then they disregard them. And then the third one comes that regardless of anything that happens, they just truly love the people that they're helping. And I think that spirit that God had in Jesus and Jesus had in God that he came to bring, and at the end of the day, we need to know who Jesus is, but that's the only true way that we know who Jesus was. And this was the platform that Martin Luther King did when he operated. That's why he saw the threat to the atheistic, materialistic group collectiveness versus the value of the individual, and then growing that group and the necessity of the civil rights movement. And that's what provoked change. It, it, it would have turned my heart because of how he conducted it and how he wondered it, even though if I grew up in that time, I might have been one that would have disregarded the black community, because it wasn't connected to me. And he brought light to that, but his whole mechanism and how he operated was so powerful. But I think we all as individuals, as believers, as sons of the king, of equality as royalty, can begin operating like this and maybe put our position of equality down and begin just looking at individuals. Not even, I'm going to reach out to the black community. No, I'm going to start reaching out to the people in front of me that have I feel disenfranchised by, and I'm going to just start loving those people. I, I don't care what group it is. Yeah. It could be the mask wearers. It could be the non-mask wearers. It could be the stay-at-homers over the COVID thing. It could be the ones that choose to get out. The one I feel the most antagonist with is the one is where I'm going to, I feel like if we step in and I'm just going to love that person, I don't have to agree with all their philosophy, but I'm going to love that person because they're a valuable individual. Things change. Th those are my thoughts. I've seen that happen. Is is that something that is consistent with what maybe you're you're trying to bring about, or would you like to add to that? Yeah, I mean that that's a hundred percent correct. If if people don't know your motive, if people if black people don't know the motive of the white person who's coming to help, stay away. Because it, it looks like you're trying to become, like you said, trendy uh, for political votes or for whatever. That's the thing that we think of. Okay, you're coming to help. Wow. What do you, what do you, what do you want to do? So most of the time people throw money at something to say that they're helping something, but they're not all in. 
they're apportioned in. When I was in Rotary, a lot of times people would donate food to the Boys and Girls Club or they would donate money to the Boys and Girls Club, but they wouldn't ever go and volunteer, like go during the week when they're there to get to know the black children, to play with the black children. Mind giving um, sandwiches from the local restaurant and say we've given away 80 sandwiches and we do this once a month. So they're throwing... It's kind of like throwing stuff at it to say that we support this local community effort and our name is on it so they can be trendy and say they always support and give money to the boys club. But I've never seen you over here playing with little John John, you know. And so that's that's where black people are real skeptical when it comes to when white people say I'm with you. Then they say we say how. And they said, well, I, whatever you need me to do, okay, I need you to come march with me in the hood tomorrow. And I need you to bring your wife and your children. You know, grandma, bring everybody with you, and y'all come march with us in the hood. And not knowing that there's going to be some rough riders in the crowd that's probably going to say something stupid, do something stupid, but they don't understand. But you're present with your status. They need to know you're going to ride or die with us and the thing about it is, you may not want to sacrifice that until you know who you're dealing with. So you can't just jump in because you feel like it's wrong. You have to jump in because you know who you're, who you're working with, because you know their heart. Then you can be an influence to them and say, hey, if we do this and you want to get good results from my culture, most white males respond this way if you do this. Then you can be transparent and tell a black man how a white man will respond if you say this or if you do it this way. That's when we're starting to do cross-cultural understanding, so that way I understand. So now I'm having to go in the hood and say, hey, don't do it that way. White, white, white guy is not going to receive you. But if you go in there you know, with some khakis on and a polo shirt, you know, then it'd be different. You can't go in there with your, your, you know, with your jeans. You got to go khaki and polo. I'm having to educate them on a culture that will make it not be intimidating. But I'm only one person. Now, you go in and say, hey, I'm not going to give you this interview because you don't look like. Now you're racist. You don't look like a person that wants this job. But you say it is racist. I say it and I'm helping them. You know, so it's, 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 it's more black people need to have this relationship with white and white with, to help us understand the culture of professionalism, the culture of, you know, just not feeling intimidated or not being afraid of what we seem to be an animal. You know, and let me ask y'all this question. Whenever you see an animal and an animal is trapped in a corner, what's the first thing that happens? What's the first thing you see if a, a cat or a dog is seem like it's cornered? What do they do whenever they seem that they're cornered? They lash out. <laughs> they lash out. That's what animals do. But guess what? How many times have black people actually gone to this level even when all this other stuff has happened? They, they might have spoken, but they didn't lash out. Because we're not animals. <laughs> it, yeah. Only animals lash yeah. out. So now the people that's lashing out are not, now they, they, it looks like they're animals, but all these other times we haven't lashed out because we're not animals. But there's the perception of blacks being animals when we've only said, nah, let's chill out. We, you know, we're going to see what happens. We'll get mad. You know, but also you have the Willie Lynch syndrome to where in the mind, we, if we do something, we're going to get shot. You have people standing around watching this man get killed, but nobody wanted to jump in and hit an officer, which I don't condone. At the same time, are you willing to die for somebody you don't know that's being mistreated that ended up dying? It's like, where's the line? And, and I, I think that can go the other direction, that all, all cops 
and white cops are brutal towards the black community when you have in Gastonia many officers trying to bridge the gap and there's so much good that's actually happening uh, that it's not a, a true reflection of the whole. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm right. saying it's not a true right. reflection of the whole. And so now, and, and part of this doesn't help is that the media tends to want to highlight the thing that benefits whatever their thing is. And so that doesn't help our communities at all either. But it doesn't matter. You know, at the end of the day, none of that matters. What really matters to me, Bernardo, in our relationship is how's this affecting you? How's this affecting your community? Because I could sit and we could, again, we could get back into, well, this isn't all true. Look, there's a bunch of good. Change your mind. You guys are wrong. We're right. You're right. We're wrong. That doesn't really fix anything. What fixes things is, all right. It doesn't matter. This is how you're perceiving the world. This is this is what you've experienced. So now how do we go from there? Yeah, I would say uh, there's a pastor who's going to get on Friday tomorrow with one of my good friends who's um, a black pastor at his church. And I can just be frank with you guys on this on this podcast. I, I, when I heard that those two were going to be on, I instantly said in my mind, he has the wrong black man speaking on behalf of black people. Now, that sounds crazy. And the reason why is because this guy is in his church. He is a black male, and I'm not saying he's not affected. I'm not saying he wouldn't be nervous or scared if he got pulled over. But because who he's sitting under as a, a, a campus pastor, it's not likely that he would go through as much as we would go through of, as, a, as a regular black pastor. And I say regular, you know, loosely. I'm saying that a lot of times we want to have discussion with people who have already arrived to a place of standard that where people can accept. You could accept me as Bernardo and you know me, but could you accept someone who walks up and he just he smells like marijuana and he has an opinion about what he sees in the community and he wants to say it and it may not come out in a more articulate way. Those are the right. ones that those are the people who have more to say than Bernardo, you know, because they're in it. I'm I'm in it, making sure I'm like you said the bridge. But those guys are the guys who are you know dealing with as much as they're dealing with, even by their own mentality of maybe not being great or whatever. But they would have more to say to help you understand. Man, he thinks like that because I don't think the way they think. I think I process, but there's other black men out here that don't process the way that I process. They didn't go through, they didn't have the benefits of having a Caucasian family and a black family. They didn't, they weren't privileged to go to an all predominantly white private Christian school at third, fourth, and fifth, sixth grade. They didn't have what I have. They don't have the opportunity that I've had in life. You know, even me going to prison, they still don't have anything half as what I've done. They haven't even gone outside of Gaston. They think going to Charlotte, North Carolina is going out of town. They've never gone to Atlanta. They've never, they've never gone outside of the local city that's 10 minutes from it. They've never done it. So, so I am a person that can think from a, a mature perspective. What about the guys that's out there looting? They have a perspective that they see, and then if they're wrong, they, they need to know from a person to say, well, this is not always the way. Those are the conversations that need to be had. Those are the podcasts that need to be had with those individuals that has an opinion and they still don't have running water at their home. You know, that's, those are the people who can give you a perspective of how they feel when they feel like they're being targeted 
You know, I can call the sheriff right now on the mm-hmm. phone. I can call the county commissioner, head county commissioner right now on the phone and have a conversation with him. And, and But everybody can't do that. Nobody has that relationship. Well, that opens up another great podcast, doesn't it? It really does. And I, I think we should work on that. And and again, for everyone listening, if, if th- this is what's critical is that if you, we never we never win people by winning their heads. We win people by winning their hearts. And this is where the change takes place. Jesus never came to win anybody's head because he caused more problems with head than he did anything else. But man, he knew how to win the heart. And that's what changed the world. That's what that's what sat in the room of the 120 people that changed the world when the Holy Spirit came, when they became united with the Father, not because of color, not because of the the whether they were Greek, whether they were Roman, whether Africa, it didn't matter. But because they had such a love and relationship to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit came and empowered them, and it changed the world. So if we're going to go convince people with head knowledge of the right ways and the wrong ways without getting to the heart, it you're going to have to control it. Then you're going to have to get tyrannical. Then you're going to have to strip people of their freedom to think as an individual and put them into a box and control them. And so you're, you're, you're talking something that's really powerful. I actually would like to do that with you of... Get someone that could share a real perspective from their view of of this whole thing, because not just this whole thing, just life it, as a whole. And I, I, I appreciate that, Bernard. I appreciate your your transparency on that. That was really profound. Hey, I'm I'm grateful, and I will tell you that a lot of people don't realize that where when Pentecost, one of the issues dealing with Pentecost. Um, and acts, the tongues came, the different tongues came in that particular room for a later cause. The later cause was that once Christ died and he went on to heaven, once Christ was gone, the church dispersed. And once the church dispersed and they went their way because of some were fearful or whatever, and they all dispersed, it was a God plan that he previously gave them tongues to be able to speak in the place that they were dispersed to. And a lot of people miss that God gave them those tongues. That's why people came at that time. They were all in the one place and people heard their language being spoken out of a room of people yeah. who were not. So when they heard these languages, they were like, what is going on? So that wasn't the big point. The big point was when Christ was crucified and he was gone and then the church was nervous of this whole uh, people being persecuted. People started fleeing, going to different places throughout throughout the earth. And they went with the tongues to be able to prophesy and speak the gospel because God set it up that way. He knew that people were going to be dispersed and he needed them to be prepared with the tools that they needed to share the gospel throughout the world. And and language is more than just knowing the right words in a transliteration. It's knowing the culture of those words. Yes. Which is really what we're talking about on this whole this whole podcast really is how do we get to the heart of a person and how do we speak to the thing that they relate to and understand that the gospel can open up their eyes and now a relationship with Jesus. Now they get to see who they really are as sons and daughters of the King. Yes, sir. 
I totally agree. That is the whole point of this is that can we speak to each other in our in the language? Do we do we have the Holy Spirit to be able to transliterate what he says in our heart to be able to go into the neighborhood and the culture and say the same thing, but where they will understand it. And then they can say, oh, I see it that way. So now I see it that way. Are we dispersing through all of this evil that's going on? Can we now disperse into the community and say, hey, I am white, but let me tell you something. My mom didn't have this. I didn't have my dad. And identify with not having a father and not being rich, but I've got here because I worked hard, but I'm here with you and I help you through it. Can you speak the same language that the person can understand, even if you're not in the culture, but you can understand? And that's where we make steps of helping others, even with black. I can be able to go across the lines and say, hey, I understand how it is with stocks and bonds. And, and when you, you, you live a certain life going through school, and your parents, you know, give you what you need to have. I've seen that before. But when I go back to the neighborhood, I have to say, listen, I know your mom was a single mom and your dad wasn't there, but you can still work hard and get the scholarship. You got to be able to still give the information that's going to free people to help them understand that you do care, not just about winning votes or just to throw money at a community and make a part and put some grass out there and some swings, but to go in and help empower them to be better citizens of the of, of their county and local area community, but also better citizens of the kingdom. And that's outreach. And, and let me just let me just throw this final point in with you, Bernardo. This isn't just the white community reaching in and speaking into the black community. This is the sons and daughters of the king reaching from the black community to speak back into the white community. This is a flowing back and forth. This isn't, we're trying to lift you up to my my size. This is, we're lifting each other up, each other up into who we are, into the, the sons and daughters of a king. You speak into my life. You, you can, you bring realities that I can't understand. So it's a two-way journey not in the sense of solving the problem, but in, in a, a value system that it's not that one culture has the has the the niche on it. It's I need you to walk with me too. As I journey in to try to deal with the fatherless and to reach people, I need you to go with me. It goes both directions. I totally agree. I totally you're so right. And that's what makes it difficult for me, is that. I'm having to do it alone. Well, when I say alone, I'm speaking as as the only black male in my community that has cultural differences to be able to speak to the white community as well as the white community speak to me. I'm the only one at this point that can honestly say right now that they that, that really only have a real white friend that could say, hey, I know what that feels like. So, yes, you're right. It's not one lifting the other. It's all of us coming together. So I appreciate this. It's, it helped me for the day. It got me through the day, and I was looking forward to it. And so I'm I'm grateful. And like it says at the end of it, I know you got wrapping it up. And uh, it's one of the things that we're just, um, like I said, if all of the people of God, if his people would just pray and um, humble ourselves, we'll be all right. And look at each other and look at each other through the lens of how the Father looks at us. Amen to that. I mean, Bernardo, I gotta thank you again, man, for taking the time to be here. I there's there's so much going on in my mind right now, and I'm gonna take some time to to process all this and everything. But man, I just I appreciate you speaking as boldly as you do. I appreciate you being that bridge, and I'm, it's not easy being a bridge because that means everybody walks on top of you at times. But 
I hope that you see the impact you're having on people. I mean, you had a huge impact on me tonight. Before we close it out, um, is, is there any way that people can connect with you or listen to you online? Do you have a website, social media, if people want to hear more from you, learn more about you? Uh, we are online for, uh, we do a private page on Peculiar Generation Community Church, so they can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and also on Twitter. All of it's the same, uh, Peculiar Generation Community Church, NC. Uh, that's on all three of them. Um, also, we're 212 South South Street, Gastonia, North Carolina, 28052. That's our location. We have worship service on Sundays. We never closed. We didn't believe in closing during the pandemic. We just um, we were less than a certain number anyway, but uh, they're more than welcome to come out. We start at 9 o'clock on Sundays. We have 7 o'clock on Wednesday Bible study. So, yeah, uh, they can reach out to me individually on Facebook, uh, inbox me, or however. That's Bernardo Porter on um, Facebook, Instagram, as well as uh, Twitter. So all the social media platforms other than Snapchat, I'm not there yet. So, um, But, yeah, I, they can reach out any kind of way and look forward to fellowshipping with them. And they don't have to come to church. They can just reach out and have a conversation. That's awesome, man. Well, we're going to wrap it up, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Um, we are, we're going to do more of this. I mean, I've, I've got to hear more from, from you in the future, Bernardo. So this won't be the last time we have you on here. And I think there's a lot to come from this. So thank you everybody for tuning in this week. We'll be back again next week with another great episode for you. We love you. We appreciate you. We know times are tough, but you've got a strong spirit in you. So stay in that and we'll talk to you next time.